As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, September 26th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we'll talk about some endgame strategy as we're now into the final 10 days of this fantasy baseball season. It's hard to believe, but we, we've made it. And navigating these last few days actually leads to some pretty quirky decisions that can be pretty challenging if you're relatively new. Even if you've played for a long time, you end up making these decisions that are almost sort of counterintuitive. So we'll talk about a few of those unique challenges. I got a bunch of great mailbag questions to get to, some with some longer term implications. But we're at that point in the season where if you play in a keeper or dynasty league, you're starting to think about the future. I think we might even squeeze in some beer of the week talk at some point on this episode as well. So, you know, we begin with our usual simple Monday question. How was your weekend? It was great. It was great. Uh, managed to go to Tornado, the best beer bar ever. Uh, and also went up for a wedding in uh, Santa Rosa. So that was fun. You know, dancing to cheesy songs. This one, which not all weddings do, had karaoke in it. Oh, that's a risky maneuver. I mean, you have to know the people you're inviting. You have to know there are more good performers than bad performers in that group. Well, I don't know which one I was, but I definitely performed. <laughs> what did you perform? <laughs> I tried to do uh, the one that didn't go so well was Prince's Let's Let's Go Crazy. <laughs> That's a tough one, man. Prince is tough. I just say, I don't know if there's an easy Prince song for karaoke, is there? And then what's the the Paul Simon song, Mama Don't Give My Cold Crow? It was funny because uh, there was like... Uh, a lot of words, and I stopped singing them, and I just went around in the background going, Mama, don't give my cold chrome away. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept saying that over and over again. Like, I think it worked a little bit. You know, the other person the other person was singing the, the rest of the words. So. Oh, <laughs> I man. ended up being like a kind of a background singer energy guy. <laughs> okay, so you went up there with other people. Yeah, which made it better, because you can kind of harmonize and make it sound a little bit better and... You know, so and Uh-oh. and then it brings energy up there. You know, oh, and we did the Black Eyed Peas. Tonight's the night. I did a lot of jumping around. <laughs> yeah, you got the crowd hyped up. It's important. You need a hype person on stage. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I just remembered I've been to at least one wedding where there was karaoke. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in oh, Sheboygan. Was first. It was a yeah. Sheboygan wedding. It was awesome. The The song I remember most, I saw a bunch of my wife's aunts and uncles and, and my, my in-laws got up on stage. They did the big group thing. Very smart. And it was the, the B-52s song. Oh, yeah. Uh, Love Shack. Mm-hmm. And all I can remember is one of my wife's aunts just hammer drunk, just doing the the female vocalist woo part. That's it. On repeat. That was her thing. That was what she decided she was going to do. So there were a lot of woos in that rendition of Love Shack. It was, oh, it was just before camera phones were good, too. So it was oh, just in that true. sweet spot in history where you could make a total didn't fool have, of yourself. Didn't have pictures of it all. Yeah, we might have some really grainy video on someone's old phone somewhere, but I think it's been lost. <laughs> it's in a drawer somewhere, and there's no yeah, charger I hope, for the I hope phone. no one took video of me. You know, one of the things, too, is like karaoke, you know, in Koreatown in the middle, you know, at 3 a.m. is very different with like five people and like a little boot, you know, that sort of karaoke is very different than uh karaoke at a wedding because my go-to's are mostly like uh pearl jam <laughs> that's not wedding you know? karaoke at all huh <laughs> that's not wedding karaoke for that's sure. not wedding karaoke no i was like um I, w- they were like what do you want to do i was like uh crap <laughs> 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 i'm not gonna do not, not not that one not that one not that oh no what am i gonna do <laughs> So that's why I just sort of jumped in with other groups. Yeah, I, I do think I, I have to have a a karaoke song prepared. <laughs> you be ready. Yeah, I've never been thrust do into Prince, the situation. Man. Prince no. is nice and energetic, but it, he it, there's a lot of wo- there's words and he sings them well. And if you don't actually sing them well, it, it, the, the song kind of isn't as good. <laughs> I think you can just disappoint people really quickly trying to uh, sing a Prince song in karaoke. Yeah, Yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) That's fun. That's a fun thing to do, to have that uh, at a wedding. Glad you had a good time. Um, Let's talk about endgame strategy. This was inspired by a question from one of our our listeners, Clinton, also inspired by my own staring at lineups and trying to squeeze stolen bases out of every last corner of my bench, hoping for the ultimate three to four steal week from a player who might have three or four steals in the last month. But hey, we we dream, right? We, we hope, we wish, we we hope that things go the way that we want. Uh, this particular question from Clinton was about ratios. He wrote in after uh, having a, a rough week in a 5 by 5 15 team at Roto League, dropped 10 points down to second place after beginning in first. And he's wondering if he misplayed the situation or if he just had some bad luck. So wins were really tight in the league. He put a few streamers in to chase the wins and had some ratio flexibility, but his streamers were clunkers. He threw Jose Suarez and Wade Miley and Drew Smiley, and then his other starters, I think George Kirby, Corbin Burns, Ross Stripling, didn't have particularly good weeks Mm, either. So the question boiled down to, if you're in first place and you're top three in ratios, should you stop chasing pitching and try and consolidate with relievers instead, right? Should you go into protect ratios mode by just shrinking the number of innings that your team is throwing? And you know you're going to sacrifice some strikeouts and some win potential along the way by doing that. I mean, so how do you make that decision? How do you find that that balance? Yeah, I'm not sure I have it 100%. I, uh, 
I think, I don't know. I don't think that I made all the right decisions this year down the stretch. And, and I'm worried that it was bad process. That I think that's the hardest part is strikeouts. If you start doing the reliever thing, you can, there's more, and, and other people are streaming on top of that. There's more volatility in that than you may expect, right? Like you may be like, oh, I've got 100Ks on this guy. And let's say it's uh, there's it's September 1st, right? I've got 100Ks on second place, you know? I've got five wins on second place. I should shut it down, you know, and protect my ratios. Well, the ratios don't move, are not as volatile at five months in, right? And you doing that, you can lose those kinds of leads over over five weeks, you know. So, uh, especially depending on how how aggressive you are. So, I spent a lot of the year being like, I have no choice but to keep chasing K's, even though I'm not first in K. You know what I mean? Like I, even though I would like to also chase saves. So I, I ended up with a lot of like toes in the water in both and i feel like being aggressive and like just switching over is the better call i think being aggressive is the easier choice to make i think chasing in in that case is a little it, like your brain can do that more logically because you say well i know i'm going to get more strikeouts if i throw these mediocre two-star pitchers and if i go from seven starters and two relievers in my lineup to nine starters or eight and one or whatever that shift is it's easier to, to process all of that no what i was saying was that i, was, I did both i would try to do both you tried, I tried to, to have both. six i tried to have three relievers and six guys with two starters in there right my thinking was i got to keep chasing k's because there's points to be had there um and but i also want saves and so to, the only way to do that is to have as many two starters in there and also still have three relievers I don't think it served me that well because you probably just didn't do what you wanted to do, right? You didn't have, sort you of didn't, you didn't chill it enough. Water a little bit, yeah. Well, I think the part of it you have to think about, regardless of whether you're protecting ratios or, or chasing volume, is you have to look at how close the other categories are. I mean, I think you're right. Ratios don't move a lot right now, but they can still be so close that every Every potential like you could be in a virtual tie. Like if you're, like if you, like I'm not, I, like if you're talking about like 0. 0.05 of ERA or you know, 0. 0.2 or three of WHIP, like that might that might not change that quickly, especially not you know two or three weeks left. Right. Uh, but but if you do look, you'll f see sometimes. Oh, I'm in like a virtual tie here. We're talking about like it's probably like 0. 0. 0.05, 0. 0.005. You know, that's separating us. So. Uh, that can change, that can change your, I mean, it's, it's a lot of times it's just, you, you should, you should think that it should be a math question, right? You should just be like, oh, I have three points available to me if I do this and I have two points available to me if I do this, you know? Um, but, uh, a lot of times those, there's a, there's, there is intercorrelation between stats, obviously, right? So it's like, if you, you could say, well, I have, uh, this is what ended up with a lot of my leagues is I have two or three points I can get in wins and I have two or three points I can get in saves, right? So the, the one I decide on, wins or saves, has to do with how I'm doing in case. <laughs> if you can lose ground in strikeouts or if you can make up ground, you're going to push more for starters because you don't want to drop in that category and you want to take the possibility of even going up in that category if it's there. Yeah. But if you're winning Ks or if you're 
buried in Ks. Or, so, or it's just solid, like where I am. I'm just not going up or down. Yeah. 30 or 40 Ks between you and the next team, you can afford to go more reliever heavy because that team behind you might get 20 more Ks than you this week, but the gap is 30 or 40. So you're okay. So yeah. it, it's it's like the the size of the the gaps in the standings is really important in making these decisions as far as you know, pushing versus holding on whichever categories you need. I, and then there's the last thing that this is, this is maybe a little bit too meta is um, the people you drop now are in the waiver pool and your opponents can pick them up. So like, let's say you're like, Oh, saves or uh, steals. Are the only thing that mattered to me on offense, you know, I don't need homers. I'm first in homers. I don't care. I'm going to drop these guys that hit homers for people who stay, steal, steal bags. Now you're giving your opponent an opportunity to pick up a guy who hits homers. Mm-hmm. And maybe they can't catch you, but maybe they can catch the guy in front of them. So if the guy, is, the, the guy you dropped is too good, you're helping your opponents. That's the other part of, of the end game that I've, I've tried to be a little more in tune with in the the last few weeks. I mean, I, I've, I've cared about this in the past, but I'm looking to see the teams around me, the teams that are are jockeying in overall position with me. What they're where, doing. where are they vulnerable and what kind of lineup are they setting right now? Because then I know, oh, they they went seven starters and two relievers. They're they're not punting saves or, or they have punted saves, so they're gonna they're gonna make up more ground in case so then I have to that. react to that. Like that's it's playing defense against them. Did you also recommend like looking at uh, the weekly transactions that weren't even your own? Also, you should do that too. Saying that because yeah. then you can get it that going into the follow like this week. If you see your opponent picked up three or four starters, and those are either two start pitchers or maybe they've just got cake matchups, you can kind of see oh they're they're chasing wins or they're they're chasing yeah, wins and yeah. K's. It's also just good to see if they and if and if they do the thing where like they're chasing stolen bases and they dropped a guy who has real power, you'll be able to see that, you know, a week early and know that maybe I can get this power guy later. Yeah. And I feel like in some ways all these things we're we're talking about can just be overwhelming because you're trying to sit there on a on a Monday so morning, a regular day. You have to think yeah. about like what's the best lineup guys for you? And, and your team. So a lot of times it's just like, let me be myopic and just think about my team because there's so much to do on my team, you know? But then yeah. you got to also think about what they're doing on their team. So for Clinton's question, the thing that stood out to me is he mentioned Suarez, Miley, and Smiley. This is a 15-team Roto League. Those guys are all right in the, the range of, of streamers you'd think about I in those leagues. I streamed Miley last week. He did have a, I think he had a one good start, one bad start week. Right, and it might have been net negative for the ratios even if it was one good one bad but i was chasing wins man all you cared about was that w i think he got one (laughs) (laughs) that group is just right on that borderline of yeah if you need to keep playing for volume i think they were all in spots where you probably you probably weren't wrong by process to throw them out there even though they're they're not guys you'd want in your lineup all the time so i'd I think this is a little more bad luck than you wouldn't than think. A yeah, hand. you wouldn't necessarily think that all those guys would blow up in one week, and he, and he got a little bit screwed by his like his studs blowing up too. Yeah, yeah, you're not really me expecting all studs, of the other guys to be then, bad. Then it wouldn't have ma- mattered so much if Smiley gave up some runs. So 
I don't think this was bad process. I think you can definitely cost yourself points in those counting stats if you go overboard getting too reliever heavy trying to protect ratios. I know there are occasions where you have to do something like that. This, based on the information we have, didn't really seem like one of them. Are there any other endgame problems you've run into? Because the pitching stuff is probably the most common of all. Have you had any other issues? Like for me, I'm just trying to, like I said earlier, I'm trying to milk stolen bases out of every corner of my roster. So that's leading me to take players. I get a 15-team league. David Peralta's on my bench this week. Not a guy that I'd ordinarily sit based on all the other factors, my lineup, matchups, all that kind of stuff, number of games. But because he seems like one of the players on my roster least likely to offer me a stolen base this week, he ended up sitting, right? So that that was the type of decision I found myself making in a few places, but just with speed alone. Yeah, you know, the the way that's, that uh, steals are right now, um, you know, chasing steals, you can end up, like, rostering some not great players. I'm, I, I'm in a daily league, um, our podcast league. Uh, I mean, I'm in a battle with Steven Nesbitt for first place, and I do want steals, um, but I ended up picking guys up like Bobby Dahlbeck for today's game because I just didn't, like, want to pick up some of the players that like there's four games today (laughs) and you know some of those pitchers are Gossman and Severino it's like I'm not I'm not itching to like you know take a slap slap happy little (laughs) like no power guy throw him against Luis Severino hope he gets one steal (laughs) you know goes one for four with one steal or something but um so you know the the, your needs plus what's actually available to you are is very interesting. Also, I think there's um, a psychological thing I run into. I did not drop Julio Rodriguez off my main. Mm. And I kind of did the math and was like, oh, but he could be back for maybe, you know, two games. Like he, like, I think he could be back around that last series of the year. The last partial week. Yeah. And uh you know he would be the best player i could get and but then there's also i'm in second place in my main because of this guy <laughs> like i don't know i probably screwed up i probably should have just dropped him but but i you know i think i think that's also a, a thing that's tough with these these this decision you're talking about and that the thing that we're talking about like there's a balance between dropping a good guy onto the wire because uh he doesn't fit what you're trying to do at the end of the season um, and then our psychological attachment to guys, uh, because you know either they're the reason you got where you are, or they're just too good to drop. You know, like a struggling veteran at the end of the season that doesn't even if he did get it going, like a Josh Donaldson, right? You're like, well, I don't even need power, but you know, is he is he too good to drop? And so there's a there is a uh, I think it's because I play enough Dynasty where I have this like oh I can't that guy's too good to drop. Like he's like, a, he's a good player. He's just having a bad season. Well, if he's having a bad season then you just got to drop him, dude, you did in a redraft. It's only about this season. You know? Yeah. The, the tough one about dropping, uh, dropping a player like Julio Rodriguez is if you get that partial week, like let's say you dropped him this week and you do find out going into the weekend, he's going to come back for the final series. You get a chance to bid on him again in leagues that are running another fab on Sunday. And they, those, those are a thing. Hmm. 
You have to make sure you've got enough fab left to get him back, though, if you need him back, if you want him back. So you have to manage that aspect of, of the end game too. And there are yeah. some teams that still have a lot of money left, and you never know if if they're hanging they around. Maybe they've got a shot at third bucks or they something. Have left on your on your guy, <laughs> right? And in the keeper, and then Julio Rodriguez steals a base from them, and they and they and they they go past you in the standings. <laughs> that does seem like our brains playing tricks on us. How unrealistic is that? FOMO. Yeah, how likely is that? You have to. That that's the hardest thing about baseball is like, you know, uh, about about fantasy. I think, and just in general, is that we're all trying to guess the likelihood of these different events happening in tiny tiny slivers of playing time. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's almost easier over the course of the season to be like, oh yeah, this guy will be good over the course of the season. I think I'm better at drafting uh, than in game than in in season because i get maybe it takes me too long to drop a guy who's just having a terrible season i think that probably happens to me you know i'm just like but he he, he's he was projected to do this well you know five six weeks into the season sometimes you can already tell somebody's having a bad season on the other hand we we wrote off uh brian reynolds to an extent you know and when i talked about it he's like i don't know <laughs> I was like, how did you get back on track? He's like, I don't know, man. It's just baseball. So I think, <laughs> yeah, I think the power, the power is where he's proved you the most wrong based on what we he were talking about. He also liked the strikeout. He got the strikeout right back in check. Back in check. The average is still a little light, but yeah, I think, I think that was one of those early season things where you try, we wanted to be right. We wanted to say, oh, wait a minute. This isn't, this isn't normal. And this is a big skills loss. And if you split the difference between what he's doing and what he's done in the past, he's still going to be here. And it's a, it's a relative bad year for him in strikeout, right? Cause if you take 2020 off the ledger, this is still the highest strikeout rate of Brian Reynolds career, right? So it's the second worst. That's, if you want sort to count of what we were, that's sort of what we were saying at the other hand, uh, what can, I'm gonna do a game log thing now? Yeah, what what exactly was that episode? It was May, maybe mid May, probably. I'll just I'll just pick uh, mid May. I'll just do uh, May fifteenth to now. Yeah, twenty three percent strikeout rate. Yeah, that's what he's had for the season. But the O swing is still up thirty five point three percent. The barrel rate is down seven point seven percent. And twenty three percent of the strikeout rate is up from last year. It's still an L. I'm not trying to say that we we yeah. we were right, but he hit 292 uh, with 19 homers since the end of May. Um, you know, I wish we, we what we will do. What we will do is go back uh, through positions and talk about who we missed on, who we liked, and who was good, and and do kind of a positional review. That is uh, that is, I think, what we've settled on for what we will do during the playoffs. That I think will always encompass our strategies and uh, sort of look back to our teams and what worked and what 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 didn't. Um, because we'll be just doing it by position. And I think that's also a good way to incorporate news that's happening in the playoffs because, um, you know, those two things kind of go naturally. And it pairs pretty well with, like, what we'll be doing in January and February, which is positional previews. You know, it's kind of, you know, you got you got to look back before you can look forward. So when we do that, we'll, 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 uh, we'll take some L's. That's literally <laughs> the exact thing i was gonna say if you stop talking one sentence sooner i was gonna say you gotta look back before you can look forward is, is that some kind of cliche that we're now uh we're all just saying around here like in, in on this show or even just in fantasy 
podcast land in general? I, I, I don't know. But <laughs> thanks for the, the question, Clinton. I think that's a, a topic that you know, a lot of us struggle with, even even some of us who played for a long time. It's still trying to figure out how to how to manage the end game carefully. I think the, for some reason in my head, when I think about managing the end of the season in fantasy baseball, I, I picture a curling match a really close curling match and it's like one of the last possible ends of the match and all the rocks are out there and we're on the last rock so we're on we're on the hammer and it's like it's all coming down to this one really difficult shot that you have to just just right if you get it just right you can win i think that's the sort of internal pressure very strange analogy but that's that's what i envision for some reason as i uh, try to make these choices Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to some other questions that came in. We got a question about Tristan McKenzie. This came in from Jake. Jake's curious to know how we feel about McKenzie as we approach the offseason. Look at the pitching model. I see his location plus and pitching plus been pretty consistent throughout the year, and his stuff plus has risen. But all three values are just a bit above league average. Looking at his stat cast numbers, I'm a little nervous about his peripherals. He's giving up a lot of hard contact and a lot of fly balls. Do you consider him a sell-high player in Dynasty, or would you hold on? I've got some solid pitching depth and an abysmal offense, and McKenzie tops my list of sell-high candidates. Bonus question, if you were to dangle McKenzie, what kind of hitter value would you be looking for in return? Last season, I sold high on Ranger Suarez and got Alec Thomas and Luis Garcia in Houston for Ian Happ. We'll be looking for something similar with McKenzie. Thanks for everything this season. Cheers, Jake. So, First part of the question, what do you make of Tristan McKenzie based on what he's done over a full season? I think the the recurring tagline that I had on McKenzie was, can he do it for a full season? Very small uh, frame, tall, but skinny. And what happens as the innings pile up? And I think he's answered the, can he hold up for a full season question? He's done that. 180 in the third innings, get a few more in these final couple starts skills have looked good a little bit of a home run issue but this overall is a very good pitcher even though everything across the board is just you know a little bit above league average in the model is this as good as it gets is this sustainable how would you play it with McKenzie unfortunately I think that there are things beyond Tristan McKenzie's own talent that are important to this discussion um and it's they're hard to kind of parse because uh for example he has the best uh combination of stuff plus and mm, i don't know if he has the best pitching plus but he has the best stuff plus between him shane bieber and cal quantrill now i have to bring those up because they're going to feature prominently in the pitcher l's 
uh, category. I might do a piece this week about uh, guys I missed on um, and why. Um, and I don't know if it's uh, like it could just be a, a model failure that they've got something that they've modeled out that's uh, that they're better at. I mean, they're a major league team. Um, but uh, I tend to sometimes look at uh, something like this Team BABIP Allowed. Um, the top five in this are A, who you might expect, and B, the most progressive organizations in baseball. The Dodgers, number one, with a 253 BABIP allowed. The Astros, number two, with a 268 BABIP allowed. The Yankees, number three, with a 268 BABIP. The Rays, number four, with a 276. And then the Guardians, number five, with a 276. So, you know, we give these organizations credit for developing pitchers, but then we see Josiah Gray leave town and not be good for his new organization, you know? And I just have to ask myself, do I think Cal Quantrill is an amazing pitcher, true talent? And there's no advanced stat that says he is. K minus BB, Sierra, you know, all that stuff says maybe below average pitcher, you know? So, okay, there's some organizational aura here. That speaks well to him. However, what if it's uh, shifting related? Well, we talked about the shift and how modest some of the resulting benefits would be for a lot of hitters. So I think we would need to keep a reasonable cap on how negative the mm-hmm. impact could be when we're talking about pitchers. If if A is true, then B must also be true. But we're working on a prediction. We're not working in certainty. I also wonder if we're just working in a little bit of a post-Dips world here. Dips theory is defense-independent pitching, which is the idea that you know a pitcher can't control what happens on a ball in play which to the large part is true, but I also know that these new models, for example, Stuff Plus and Pitching Plus, are trained against runs allowed rather than trained against whiffs. So early early models were just what pitches get whiffs, you know? So it's very strikeout, uh, strikeout sort of, uh, you know, focused. But you've seen some of the wins this year in Pitching Plus have not been great strikeout artists. Talking about Urquidy, Wells, um, Rasmussen. There's been a fair amount of guys who've been really good with lower strikeout rates. So what if these organizations, and I know, you know, I know, uh, I know four of them of the five have stuff plus numbers, you know? So what if they train theirs against balls and against runs allowed and they figured out that certain pitches, you know, like, for example, cutters just have a lower BABIP, you know, there's a fair amount of cutters on these teams. Um, You know, maybe they've just figured out certain combinations of locations and shapes of pitches that lead to low BABIPs. And is Tristan McKenzie going to be a guardian next year? Yes. Does Tristan McKenzie have the best model numbers of any guardian? Yes. Do the guardians seem to outproduce their numbers every year yes is the shift going to change next year yes i would say he's not as clear a sell high as the other two names he mentioned the other part of being 
wary of McKenzie, though, comes back to those longer term durability concerns. And that just seems like a bias against a player's body type or Maybe it's the the bias preferring an Alec Manoa build in a starting pitcher, and if well, it's not an Alec Manoa build, then then we're we're a little more skeptical. However, you want to frame it, that's the other part of of what people worry about with McKenzie. Do you think that's good worry, or do you think that's unnecessary worry? Well, we, you know, we have an ongoing joke with Paul Spore, who is, is you know, <laughs> that's the kind of built like Chris type. Sale. That's that's the McKenzie Sale. Yeah, Spore has it. Is, but the, the joke is about Chris Sale is like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were yelling about how he's going to be injured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you right if he gets injured like eight years later? No, you're not. <laughs> you're not right. Because the people that were the most skeptical thought he was going to break well before he actually did. <laughs> he, he broke. Oh, I was right. <laughs> I was right. The, almost like all that pain break guy, eventually. Did that pain guy tweet when Chris Sale broke. Oh, I told you. Still not convinced that's actually a serious account. Still think it could be parody. If it's parody, it's awful. It's like the worst, grossest trolling that exists. I, yeah, just, either I, way, I'm not. It's not good. It's not, not good. <laughs> yeah, parody or uh, not, it's just a bad account. I mean, he threw 180 innings this year. He threw 140 last year. That uh, with in the current landscape, that's a workhorse, dude. Yeah. No, it, it absolutely is. Tristan McKenzie, for people who either don't have him on their roster or haven't thought about it this way yet has been in almost the top 20 starting pitcher this year, just in terms of dollars earned based on the stats, right? So you look at him favorably, you know, alongside of Robert Valdez, Shane Bieber, Nestor Cortez, Christian Javier. He's in that group. So when we're talking about where does he go next year, I think he's going to be treated like a pretty consistent, what, starting pitcher two? Probably in the 20 to 30 range amongst drafted starting pitchers. I don't think he's going to go later than what he has returned this season because he has traits that everybody would like. Being in the AL Central, being in that organization, you you listed off a long, a large group of positive traits with Tristan McKenzie. I think the, the pros significantly outweigh the cons. Now, if you are in a situation where you feel like you got a lot of pitching, anytime you can trade excess pitching for a hitter, right, you yeah. should do it. It's That's not about cap- McKenzie specifically. I've got, really, yeah. But I think if you're trading a, a young top 20, top 25 starting pitcher in a good organization with good matchups and good skills, you should expect a lot in return. I wonder if in a keeper league, if you do better aiming for a slightly older hitter, though, as opposed to a young hitter. You know, thinking about the Ranger for Alec Thomas swap and Garcia for Hap's kind of like more like a, a mid-career sort of guy in Hap, but can you throw Almost McKenzie? like the Hap one better. I mean, that, that fits what you're saying. Yeah, the, instead of going for the prospect, guy. go for someone who's more established. With McKenzie, what's the ceiling? Could you could you trade Tristan McKenzie for Alex Bregman in a keeper league right now? Is that doable? If if the needs of the person who has Bregman are opposite your own, is that a reasonable offer? So in my twelve team uh, home league that I've had for you know fifteen years or something, um, I was trying to trade away Rowdy Telez and Willie Adamas. I had O'Neill Cruz and Jeremy Pena and you know a lot of shortstop eligible guys and I just thought this is this is a good idea. I don't know. I didn't end up doing it. So there's one of those times when like 
Maybe I was right. I just keep Adamus. That's fine. Uh, to, Rowdy seems pretty fungible, but there's always the in these twelve teamers. I'm always trying to consolidate. I'm always trying to get just a little bit more value for my two roster spots and the roster spot. You know what I mean? So I just thought Rowdy and Adamus. This is a good package. And I went through the entire league trying to give, trying to trade away Rowdy and Adamus for one offensive player, and nobody bit. And the closest I got was i think it was rowdy and adamas for tristan mckenzie i thought about it and i was like i'm gonna buy this young pitcher i like this guy and maybe the maybe the way i can trick this out is make my pitching staff better and then go and find somebody like rowdy and adamas on the wire and and repeat you know maybe just i need to swim in a different direction because they've known me for so long in this league they know every time i'm coming uh, you know, trying to trade a pitcher for a bat or, or trying to get their young bats. They're just like, no, no, no. Why do you, you oh, you want him? <laughs> so uh, I ended up having a hard time trading this year. Uh, and I have Rowdy and Adamus and, you know, maybe I drop Rowdy for, for somebody next year in the draft. I actually don't think McKenzie for Adamus is unfair either. I think that's a pretty... But that's that's why I was trying to I was trying to bring that up. So you're just talking about Bregman. So I think you know I think that was fair. So I think Adamus for for McKenzie is is a right where he's at his level because Adamus just he's good but he has flaws. He doesn't he's at a position you normally get some steals from. He's not going to give you many, and uh, you know he's not a good batting average guy because of strikeouts. Eight for ten this year in stolen bases though, running a little bit more. That's a team that's kind of sneaky willing to pick spots that's more than i thought he had yeah that's it's kind of like i mean because of dansby swanson's big step forward this year i think the willie adames steps forward maybe have been a little overshadowed in 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 just a broader like pool of players you're right about the average flaw this is the lowest batting average we've seen from adames at 241 k rates down a little bit I don't know. Barrel rate's been ticking up every single year. Five years in the big leagues. Every year he's been in the big leagues, Willie Adamas has increased his barrel rate. That can't happen forever. But I I almost wonder if we could Frankenstein together one more season where he does all the things he's shown over the 35. years all together. Like he could have a peak season left in him where he hits like two, 280 with 35 homers. Yeah, he's missed a little time this year too. 131 games, 31 homers. Just a better season than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of glad I still have him. It's it's fine. It's frustrating sometimes when you just you try you think you have a, a good package to to go shopping with and you don't get anything for which your your effort. You know, I, I had another thought here. Just as kind of, uh, it's just I think it's it's part of what we're talking about. It's a, but it's not on the rundown. And the strategy that we've been talking about of like getting players that have a little bit of speed. I think that's a roto strategy. Does that not work as well in head-to-head? Because that 12-team dynasty is head-to-head. So the reason I have Adamus as a zero in stolen bases is I don't think of him as part of my steals package. Like, you know, late in the week you need a steal, Adamus is out. Because it's not, it's, that's not a number of steals I can count on. I'm not like, oh, yeah, Adamus is going to steal a base this week. You know what I mean? I wonder if hmm. in head-to-head you need to be a little bit more like, no, I have my steals, guys. No. I don't. Th- I, I, you think you still just sort of grab a little so. bit of steals? Like, you know, just get. You could have five guys who have ten steals. That means that one, one or two of those guys are going to get a steal this week. I can't give you a clear reason why I don't think it matters, but my 
my instinct is that it probably doesn't matter. I think, hmm. you know, we talk a lot about stolen bases happen against a pitcher. Like, yes, there's a pitcher yeah. and a catcher and the timing of, of the pop time, like all that stuff matters, but it's usually considered like a stolen base comes off of a pitcher. You decide to run more based on the pitcher than anything else. Uh-huh. Right? So I think what you would need is more more granular analysis when you have a roster full of guys that run some but not a lot. If you have to make sit-start calls in a head-to-head league, I think you got to look more closely at those actual matchups because someone like Willie Adames probably picks his spots very carefully. He could be in his steal, in a steals package if he's facing Noah Syndergaard this weekend. Right. Or even even just someone... Yeah, Syndergaard's the perfect example because <laughs> any, anybody against Syndergaard you want in there. But yeah. you just... You choose, I think, based on factors like that. You have to be more aware of factors like that if you build that way. Whereas the in-out thing, if you've got some, I don't know, if Miles Straw got dropped in a league like that, and he's played pretty well down the stretch, but if he got dropped in a 12-team head-to-head league, yeah, sure, you're chasing speed. You're going to throw Miles Straw in at the end of the week because you know that's that's what he brings to the table. But I think what you overlook in a head-to-head league is that Willie Adames is better in what every other category mm. by a pretty by pretty wide margins based on where he hits in the order. So you're taking a hit in at least three categories for a boost in one. So then in head to head, that could that could be a pretty big difference. Oh, hey, you won steals with your steals package, but guess what? You just lost the other stats that you needed. Like Jorge Mateo versus Willie Adames on the year. Yeah, more that's that's more like that, but that's still man, Mateo. Tough player for next year. Really tough player for next year. Especially with Gunnar Henderson playing shortstop, you know, like he could, he could, Jorge Mateo uh, just had an 81 WRC plus at 27 years old. And I think he pretty much deserved all, every bit of that 81 WRC plus. The shape was weird though. It was, and it, and he definitely made some improvements. I'm not saying he didn't, and the power looks a little bit better. But with that strikeout rate and walk combo, I think he's headed towards, you know, being a backup. Yeah, good defender. Not necessarily a guy they want to pencil in probably as an everyday player next year. We'll see what happens. A team change could always happen for a player like that too, where another rebuilding squad might feel better about giving him 500 plus plate appearances and. The Orioles and might see give them a picture, a better build overall if they they do something like that. But you know, if you're going really young, thinking about a player like McKenzie, just similar value. I mean, we've had a lot of players debut this year. I was looking for prospects who haven't come up yet, who might be right around that value level. I don't think you're getting to the top of the list. I don't think you're getting a you're not getting Jordan Walker right now for Tristan McKenzie in a dynasty league. That's not going to happen. Are you Jason Dominguez, maybe. I don't know if you want to do that, though. I, th- I think pitching's hard enough to get. I think even if you have a lot of it, I think you just would stand pat. Unless your team's not playing for 2023, then you can think about the Dominguez-type options. Either way, it's not easy, and my advice would be to angle more for an established player, Adamus, Bregman, players like that, if you're going to move Like McKenzie. a buy-low veteran, too, you know? Like, just somebody with an established record. Or maybe, I mean, could you... After all the injuries this year, could you take McKenzie and put him out there and try and get Eloy Jimenez? And maybe you have to add something else with McKenzie as a throw-in, but hmm. that might be the, that's, the road that's I'd go the down. That's the stuff I like to do, yeah. A young player who's been in the big leagues for a little while, whose stock has taken a hit, per-game production still looks good. Yeah, it's risky, but then there's risk on both sides. The, the risk you feel with McKenzie, either holding him or the other person feels trying to trade for him, 
they're giving up some risk coming back. And I think mm-hmm. the, of the two risks, I'd, I'd be a little more comfortable with Eloy Jimenez in a long-term league. All this is, again, is to say Tristan McKenzie looks good. This looks legit. So if you are out there and you have him and you want to keep him, I don't think you're wrong for wanting to keep him. Thanks a lot for that question, Jake. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Another question here from Michael. As we wind down the year, I like to look at early returns from the trade deadline. I think the long-term ramifications for the Nationals and Padres still need a long time to marinate, but I'm interested in some of the smaller moves to see where we can find values for next year. I'm intrigued by the deals between the Phillies and Angels that ultimately resulted in a swap of young struggling outfielders in Brandon Marsh and Mickey Moniak. Neither player has likely become a star as their prospect pedigree once suggested. Both players are showing signs they're benefiting from a change of scenery. Are there signs under the hood for either of these players that they will matter to fantasy managers in 2023? Michael also threw in a beer of the week, Super Lager from Wild Leap, which I have not not had before. Sounds kind of amazing. Yeah, that's great. I had a Fest beer, and, uh, you know, it's it's Oktoberfest time. Mm -hmm. But... uh, The the thing that I like to do is just... um, Try not to look at any sort of slash line type stuff too hard. Uh, that's a good. That's good all season, but it's particularly good when you're just looking at 100 plate appearances with a new squad. And the biggest evidence I have for you know taking one or the other is Marsh uh, really put an effort into uh, stri- striking out less, and that's really interesting to me because he's had pretty wildly oscillating up and down strikeout numbers in the minors. And if he, if this could stick, I think that would make him a lot better player. So for example, he had a 36% strikeout rate with the angels. And, uh, that was in line with his numbers from his rookie season when he struck out 35% of the time. So, you know, that's, I think pretty far gone. There's not that many regulars that have a 36% strikeout rate. With the Phillies, he has a 31%, 30.8% strikeout rate with a corresponding drop in whiff rate with, you know, very clear changes to to setup and swing. And um, I like that, you know, Uh, he has over their careers. They have similar, but Marsh has slightly better barrel rates. And they have the same problems where Moniak also has uh, strikeout rate problems. But we have, with Moniak, no change in strikeout rate with this new team. And with Marsh, we have a change. Yeah, there's also the organizational questions. Like the things that the Angels couldn't fix with Marsh and Joe Adele, 
not sure they're gonna be able to fix that with Moniac. Moniac, so I, right? <laughs> yeah, I, same problem. They they traded away with the same problem, with the same problem almost. If there's a a benefit for Moniac, maybe it's just getting out of the organization where expectations were sky high. You go one one to a team, and you know you're just not that kind of player from a historical sense. Well, okay, then that pressure is added pressure that you feel every time something doesn't go right. Maybe that's gone being in a new organization. Maybe that's part of what helps him take steps forward. I think the the other parts of the Moniac profile that are worth looking at is this season at AAA as a 24-year-old, very limited time there. We saw a 277, 341, 518 line, a 124 WRC+. plus. It's a good player. Five homers, five steals. 91 plate appearances. Very, very small sample. And I think last year in a larger sample at AAA, it was a 91 WRC+. plus. You go all the way back through his minor league track record, and you've got one full season's worth of plate appearances. That was double A as a 21-year-old in 2019 where he was an above-average player, 115 WRC+. It's certainly not hopeless for Moniac, but I think our expectations are probably more of like a fourth outfielder. And if he's more than that, maybe it's just because things click a little late for him and he's a late bloomer. That could happen. I'm much more inclined to believe in Brandon Marsh in part because the thing he's missing right now, he's not really walking at all with this approach, but again, 104 plate appearances. The improved K rate's a good sign. The barrel rates have been solid. We've seen patience in the past, and there's a lot of other things he does. He, he has that that power-speed combo. It's a 10-10 season, even, even as he's figured things out. 10 homers, 10 steal. It's good in a mono league, at least. But I think when we start to look ahead to draft and hold season, we start thinking about 2023, this is a profile I actually want on the bottom part of my roster. And a big part of it is that I think the playing time is going to be very stable. I think they need Brandon they Marsh need in center Beerling field. is not a good center fielder. Odubel Herrera is not a good center fielder. Hopefully he's gone by next year. Yeah, I think they're finally moving on from from some of, of those players being in that position group, at least, if not in the case of Herrera, moving on entirely. But I'm in on Marsh as a, a very deep league sort of player, someone that in a, a dynasty or a keeper league that you could acquire in the offseason probably as a throw-in in some cases where a lot of players are kept. I think you might be surprised at what you get from him next season because it's a, it's a very hitter-friendly environment, good lineup around him too, so the counting stats will be better than a lot of other players. I like the I like the hitting coach there, Kevin Long. I like the director of hitting there, O-Chart. You know. Yeah. I think, they're, I think they're pretty good at the hitting part and... Um, I think there's also if if they hit their 75th percentiles, I think Marsh's is just better, right? A little bit because of that walk rate. So if they hit their 70th percentiles next year, I feel like you know uh, Marsh could hit 260 with a 320 OBP and uh, have like uh, you know what like 25 homers and fi- the steals is a big thing with the new rules, but he could go like 2020 next year. It's not out of the question. I'm not stretching it too hard. I'm just giving him back some of the walk rates he's had in the minors along with the new strikeout rate. Um, so, And projections are going to be pretty light, I think, on Marsh. You're going to get like 240, 245 type averages, 310, 315, maybe at the high end for an OBP and probably even a 400 or lower slugging percentage. But I think you could make a case for taking the over across the board on that 2023 slash line for all of these reasons. Thanks a lot for that question, Michael. 
We've talked a lot recently about the 2023 rules changes, and I think there's been this sort of lingering question for the long haul about catcher values. Uh, But the immediate concern would be that if stolen base attempts are going to go up, that stolen base uh, defense from catchers, the ability to handle the running game, is maybe going to be a little more under the microscope. So this question came in from Rich. He uses Cal Raleigh as an example. Raleigh's a switch hitting catcher on an improving offensive lineup. Strikes out way too much for my liking, but his power is very impressive. He's a good pitch framer. The knock on him is his fringe average arm. He struggles to get runners out. My question is, how will the new rules for 2023 and the eventuality of MLB's automated strike zone affect drafting catchers for 2023, especially in a keeper league? So... Usually what Rich does, he included this in the email as well, he drafts catchers at A ball and double A as kind of a hit and miss sort of thing because it's a you know it's a dynasty league where they have to roster two. And we know catchers sometimes take a lot longer to develop. It's very hard to hold onto those prospects and to be right about them. Yeah, that's a tough league, man. Two catch two catchers in Dynasty. Woo. Um Yes, I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about things like how will they stand behind the plate and would this help Cal Raleigh? So, uh, you know, I think that uh, there's a a possibility they might stand more like an infielder because the things that we see, like them getting down on one knee and, and, you know, most of the way that they're they're sitting and standing right now is to make their framing better. So if that's not going to be an aspect, and I think we're talking about automated balls and strikes in two years. Um, so I think this is coming very fast. Um, I, I mentioned that I like Logan O'Hop, you know, as an, uh, as a possible offensive minded catcher. I think that teams may go with offense at the position a little bit more. Um, and, and could, could standing in a different way help Cal Raleigh throw people out, you know, cause that'll be the thing that you want. And, and the last thing is, I don't think blocking is that important. Blocking, um, is just not something with a big range of values and it it happens when it happens people think about it a lot but it doesn't happen that often that it that it uh causes a problem the the spread in blocking runs is just not that big um so i just feel um i like cal rally enough that i think it could be a boon for him even if because there's just enough power there uh, but uh, people, I think that'll be that'll be hurt. Jose Trevino types, I think, get really hurt. Uh, he's first in framing. Why does he? You know, uh, somebody that also gets jobs for his framing. Uh, maybe he gets Shoka Grandal if he can't get the offense going again. You know, he's one of his things is is how good he frames. Uh, Jason Delay might be a framing guy that gets jobs for his framing. Um, generally also the people that don't have great offense are going to filter out because I think teams will go for more offense at the position. Yeah. Raleigh, I think that's why I think Raleigh might be safer because I think he actually has pretty good offense for a catcher. Yeah. No, I I believe in the the bat for sure. And he's pretty big. He's one of the larger catchers. He's like six, three. And you think about just the mechanics of, of getting out of a, a crouch or getting up from being on, on a knee, like however however he tends to receive the ball. I don't I don't watch the Mariners enough to have a, a firm grasp on that, but I can imagine being larger, just taller, makes it a little harder to get into your mechanics and to release the ball quickly out of those positions. 
generally speaking. There probably are exceptions, but I could see that being something if you can change your technique, you might be right that his pop time might get better if he cha- if he didn't have to consider his framing. Right, he might gain more if he can receive the ball differently in the future. But I, I think because that's still a couple of years out, I'd be more focused on the stolen base issues right now. But I still, uh, I look at that. You agree with what we were talking about earlier, right? The bases are stolen off of pitchers. More than catchers. Yeah. More than catchers, even though the catcher does have a role in it. Yeah, I mean... Uh, what's a way to show this? You could look at uh, the leaderboards. Uh, yeah, I've got it up right now. Jacob Stallings leads the league in stolen bases allowed. 57 stolen bases against Jacob Stallings. I don't think of Jacob Stallings as a bad defensive catcher. Um, he, You know why, though? Well, he's uh, Where is he again? Miami. Miami. <laughs> Excuse me. Big sneeze. He's in, he's in Miami. Uh, Sandy Alcantara has 22 of those. By himself. So who else? Uh, who else is doing that in Miami? That's so bad. Pablo Lopez is five. So we got twenty-seven. How many did did uh, did he give up? Fifty-seven. Hmm. So he's not good. There was one other Marlin starter I saw on the pitching leaderboard for that though. Let's see, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Set, uh, Alcantara is up there. But see, I think what we'd be looking for is the disagreement between stolen bases allowed, Braxton Garrett nine. and pop time, right? Don't you want to like find the the disparities between those where catcher can be fast if the pitcher's slow, it doesn't matter. Well, if you just do it by teams, uh, you know, this is what I was going to say. So the the Angels are are uh, fifth most stolen bases allowed, ninety five, right? Uh, but if you then break it out and look at who those 95 are, uh, what you'll find is, oh, Anaheim is. Oh, and while you're looking that up, check this out. Jacob Stallings actually is slow for pop time. So my perception of him is wrong just based on preconceived notions about him based on other factors. He's 26 percentile in pop time. So, so they have 95 uh, stolen bases allowed. 25 of them are Norris Syndergaard, right? 13 of them are Reed Detmers. Uh, and then you could take Tapera and Herget, right? If you take those four pitchers, that's more than half of their... Uh, that's about half of the, the their, all of the stolen bases allowed. So I think that is uh, a little bit of evidence that it's mostly the pitcher and not the... If you if it was the catcher that was the problem in Anaheim, it would be all of them, right? Patrick Sandoval is on the same team as Noah Syndergaard earlier this season. Patrick Sandoval has allowed three stolen bases. Yeah, so that's why I mean you do have to look at you have to look at both. You can't Jose just Suarez has allowed one. Yeah, I think it's mostly off the pitcher. That it also matches our reporting. Me and Andrew Baggerly and I uh, were were talking to coaches and, and players about this and. They were all like, yeah, it's all about the pitcher. Well, you know the pitcher's time to home, and if he doesn't vary them or he's too slow to home, then we take off. Looking at some other pop times, Cal Raleigh, 34th percentile in pop time. So there's there's something there. Tucker Barnhart. I'm looking at the caught stealing leaderboard to see who's actually good at pop time. 34th percentile. Who's good at pop time? Is anyone good at pop time? <laughs> Everyone's in the 34th percentile. Who is good? Uh... I look at that leaderboard. Alfaro, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. 
Because it's not just about catching runners, because teams run on you more if they think they can run on you. So the volume, it's it's more the success rate. Rio Muto is is number one. Right. And he's he's allowed thirty seven, he's caught twenty seven. So that's that makes sense. Yeah. He's at one eight two. Alfaro is uh third at one eight nine. Uh Sean Murphy is one eight nine. But look, the spread, let's let's talk let's start let's talk starting catchers. I don't wanna I'm not maybe there's some some catchers there are some catchers down here that don't play a lot that have uh bad pop times. But the difference between Austin Nola at sixty third and Jorge Alfaro at third is two point oh one to one point eight nine. So we're talking point two two of a second. I think that's that's what I'm talking about, the spread of things, right? I think this I think the spread here is not very wide. I was wondering too, thinking about some of the the other young catchers that we rely on for their bats. I mean Alejandro Kirk defensively. Not not a great framer, right? This year Stackcast has him as an excellent framer. Yeah. But also slow pop time. Yeah, I, I, this is I just I like this question because this is something I had not I had not previously thought a lot about. I don't know if the if it's going to be something that impacts playing time right away or if there'd be a lag. I mean, we could go through 2023 kind of have more of a let's see what happens and then going into 2024 maybe we'd have a little more of a a reaction to some of the other catchers that got ran on a lot. How about the bad framers that might play more if it's automatic balls and strikes? Uh, especially, I think, of Francisco Mejia. Uh, you know, slightly better offensive catcher. MJ Melendez, the worst framer in baseball this year. Hmm. Uh, minimum 100 innings. But, yeah, there's a lot of people with... He's up there with 500 innings. So, m- worst framer in baseball that was already playing in little left field. Maybe with automated balls and strikes, he goes behind the plate, and Sal Perez is the is more of a DH. Um, Austin Nola is a bad framer. All right, so, so let's put this into other terms. Are there Kyber any Ruiz got bad framing numbers this year? Are there any catchers that you are worried about for next year, with the possibility or likelihood of teams taking off more often? Any catchers that you otherwise would have liked? You say, "Oh, playing time might actually become a problem." For this guy, if teams are going to be more active on the base paths, Yasmani Grandal has the second, the third worst pop time in baseball, and is known as a plus framer. And we bought him for his 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 offense in the past, right? He used to be one of these great catchers that was great at everything. You knew he'd play all the time because he's a great framer and he had great offense. Well, I think injuries have really sapped the offense. If you're thinking, oh, I'm gonna bu- I'm gonna buy him on a bounce back. Um, offensively, uh, you may get one year out of him. Maybe a, a year from now, he's a backup DH type because he can't throw runners out. So Grandal strikes as, uh, is out there for me. Uh, a lot of uh, the worst pop times are retiring. Steven Vogt was last. Uh, Kurt Suzuki was 77th. Yadier Molina is 78th. Um, so, you know, there's uh, that's going to be called... Who is above that? Mitch Garver was he already was he was DHing because of the forearm injury, right? Yeah, because of injuries, but also uh, Jonah Heim is a, a better defender, better catcher. Yeah, 
Well, maybe I guess a little bit worried for Mitch Garver. You you think you buy him on a bounce back, but he's got injury. And then what if he has like a injury uh, season and then, you know, they're running all over, running on him. He, you know, the forearm is still a little sore or whatever. And then, and then automated balls and strikes comes and, you know, he just doesn't have the same value he used to have. So um, Max Stassi has a poor pop time. James McCann. I think there's uh, enough offensibility there where they'll probably stick around, though. Yeah, so I guess the, the main takeaway is just watch out for the horrendous pop times in particular. Because if teams are, are going to run a lot more, the guys who are very bad at getting rid of the ball quickly, they're going to get picked on just the, just as like the same as the slow pitchers to home plate. Yeah. Teams are measuring this. They're going, to, they're going to rigorously take advantage of all the information they have at their disposal. And that's one of the things we have publicly that might shed some light on, on catchers that are in danger of, of losing some playing time. But you, you could hit enough to where it won't matter. You could have fast pitchers working with you that could help offset it. So you have to look at those factors too. Yeah. But there'll, you know, there'll also be some long-term uh, changes to what they value that won't, that won't happen in year one, you know, because with automated balls and strikes and the framing and, and the and the rules for throwing over and the the bases and everything like there's there's a bunch of shifting you know incentives for for teams to when they're evaluating catchers and what they're looking for and I don't think that'll all just suss out in year one. No, I'm trying to think of any prospect types that I would be. Well, yeah, skeptical I brought, I brought up Ohop. I was just like, I think I think Ohop is will like these rules. Maybe. Maybe some of the Yankees' optimism, but Austin Wells being a catcher is more realistic with the direction things are going. But I still, I've, I've just got Keith Law in my head on that one. I would say just generally offensive-minded prospect catchers, where you might hear something like, you know, Fangrass has a forty-fifty on Logan O'Hop fielding. I think those types, uh, 40-50 fielding catchers with good offense are, you know, become a little bit more interesting. Hopefully that helped. Hope that steers a few people in the right direction as you think about that position for the next few seasons. We are going to go on our way out. A quick reminder, you can email us questions at ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. If you've got mailbag questions for a future episode, you can send us tweets. He's at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash ratesandbarrels. That's going to do it for us today. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. 